So, Lord, we thank you for the power of your word. Let it, let it be a sword that cuts away what needs to go. Let, let there be a washing of the water of the word. Let there be a light of truth shine and dispel all the darkness and deception and bring truth and revelation. Lord, I ask you to watch over your word and let everything be accomplished. Your will be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And Father, we bind away the enemy's attack and influence away from your word and that they will not steal the seed, they will not hinder. In the name of Jesus, we bind them and we thank you, Lord, for a mighty anointing. All right, we need to make sure all the music's killed, but y'all ready? Let's get into the word of the Lord. So as we're dealing with tabernacles in Exodus 25, verse 8, talking about the tabernacle of Moses here, the Lord brought the children of Israel out of Egypt And it's interesting that God brought them out, but the Lord spoke to them something. He spoke to Moses and said this. He said, have them make a sanctuary for me, and I may dwell among them. Now, that's a very interesting scripture if you think about it. Why is it that God has such a heart to dwell among his people? Has he really ever thought about how much the Lord wants to dwell among his people? When God created man, you have to understand he wanted a family. He had plenty of angels. Angels are like maids and butlers. They're servants. But the Lord wanted a family. And so he created mankind, and he would come down and walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. He wanted people to fellowship with. He wanted to come down and dwell among his people. And sin has separated man from God in that way. But God, even during the time of the law here, God wanted Moses to build a tabernacle where he could come dwell among his people. And so that's, in essence, one of the key points I want to make in this sermon. I'm going to cover different things, but I really want to bring home that that's what it represents. And you guys know as well as I do, it's one thing to talk about something. It's an entirely different thing to experience it. You're never really going to fully understand something to experience it. For example, spiritually speaking, we can talk about the power of God, the presence of God. We can talk about being baptized in the Holy Spirit. We can talk about speaking in tongues. And you can get some kind of head knowledge about this, but it's never the same until you experience His presence and power for yourself. It'll never really be totally real to you. And in the same way, when we're dealing, the reason, one of the reasons why I like to, to do things like here at Tabernacles we built this what's called a sukkah here, should be called a booth in English. But we built this because it's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to actually build one and people go stand in it. And you know what we're talking about. And so the same thing with the lulav or the palm branches. Here in a little bit, I'm going to have them bring them to me. It's one thing to talk about it, but it's another thing to hold it physically in your hand. And be able to experience it. So I like to have us participate during these feast times. It will make the Bible come alive to you in a way that is absolutely amazing. So let me pick up where I left off with the last two sermons I did along these lines. If you haven't heard all of them, I encourage you to go back and listen to them. These sermons have really, I believe, impacted River of Life. I felt in my spirit that these three sermons have made an impact very deeply in many people's lives. I dealt with Yom Teruah, which is also called Rosh Hashanah, but about the rapture. And I dealt with the Jewish traditions of, of like a wedding back in ancient times and how it parallels. And we did the shofar blasting and, and we talked about what is, you know, what the rapture is going to look like. 
And then last, I did the Days of Jacob's Trouble. And I talked about Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement. And we dealt with all of that and how it's different than the rapture. And now, I want to deal kind of a third part here where I deal with the tabernacles. And so, I believe this has really helped people. But as you go back and listen to them again, I believe God will give you some depth and some revelation. So let's go back through this menorah of the feast again. God gave these seven major feasts as prophetic timelines. There's many other purposes. There's a lot that we can glean from them as Christians today as well. The Lord made it very clear in Leviticus, as I've mentioned every time, the Lord made it very clear these are not Israel's feasts, these are my feasts. And there's a big difference. He said these are my feasts and that they're to be observed throughout all generations and we know that they're going to be observed in the millennial reign of Christ, okay? So Jesus came and died on, as you're looking at the, you know, the example here, Jesus came and died on Passover. He was buried in the tomb during unleavened bread. Now I'm talking about the day. People haven't ever heard this. I'm talking about the day of Passover, not the day before, on that day. He was buried in the tomb during unleavened bread because his body was without sin, without yeast. He is the unleavened bread, if you will. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread was fulfilled when Jesus was in the tomb. And he raised from the dead on firstfruits that day. Not the day after, on the day of firstfruits. During what's called the counting of the Omer that starts, you know, during the spring feast and goes to Pentecost. During that time, Jesus was appearing to people. He appeared to around 500 people raised from the dead. He appeared to them. We know about the road to Emmaus. We know about his disciples where he walked through a wall and they all freaked out. Remember this? And he was on the seashore and ate some fish. And Peter and them came in. He appeared to people. But it was during that time of the counting of the Omer. And then he ascended after 40 days of appearing to people. He ascended on the 40th day of the counting of the Omer. There was 10 days left. He told them, you need to go into Jerusalem, begin to pray, and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. So they go, like they're supposed to, into Jerusalem. And now they're waiting for what's called Shavuot, or the Feast of Pentecost. And the Bible says when the Feast of Pentecost fully came on that day, the Holy Spirit fell and the birthing of the church took place. And we know that that church went from, you know, there might have been around 500 people that Jesus appeared to that were faithful to him. But there was only 120 present. And it grew from 120 and added 3,000 people that day, in one day, because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And so these feasts were fulfilled, and now we're looking at the future of the fall feast being fulfilled. And that's why I talked about in the sermon about Yom Teruah, I talked about the power of the communion table, and I talked about the shofar, and this is all connected to the bride being caught away, the rapture. And then I did a sermon where I talked about the days of Jacob's trouble, which is Yom Kippur. We call it the tribulation time in Christendom by and large. And so this is a seven-year period that's going to be very difficult in the world, but it's primarily regarding Israel. And I want to deal now with the last feast called Tabernacles or Sukkot, and this is the thousand-year reign of Christ. So let me say it again. The three feasts that are to be fulfilled in the near future, Yom Teruah, the rapture. Then you're going to have the seven-year tribulation, 
Yom Kippur. And then you're going to have tabernacles where the Lord comes to rule and reign for a thousand years. How many look forward to that day? All right. So let me just kind of go through this, and I believe that this sermon will be a blessing to you. So in ta- regarding tabernacles, Leviticus 23, most likely Christ was born during the Feast of Tabernacles. If you do the math, and the time that Mary conceived, and you can kind of do a timeline based on when John the Baptist was conceived, etc., you can put it all together. But it, it would indicate that probably it's likely that Jesus was conceived around Hanukkah, but that he was born in tabernacles. And if he was born in tabernacles, and I personally believe that he was, then there would have been a sukkah, okay, if you will, those booths would have been everywhere. And the reason why they did all the, you know, everything was full and they ended up in a manger is because everybody was traveling into Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And there would have been what's called a lulav, these palm branches and all that, they would have been everywhere. And so Jesus most likely came into the world during that time. And so I want you to think about this for a minute, okay? Jesus Christ, okay, in Hebrew, Yeshua Hamashik, the Messiah, was born, he came into the world most likely at tabernacles. Think about the significance of that, okay? Now, as you think about that, look at this. In John 1.14, the Bible says, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. But where it says dwelled among us, if you look up the Greek, it means this, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So during tabernacles or Sukkot, it's interesting because God told Israel, and then this was to be observed throughout all generations, to build these temporary little flimsy shelters, these booths, okay, called a sukkah. And I'm going to tell you, he, he told them to do this because the patriarchs and the children of Israel you know, before they went into Egypt, talk about Jacob and his children, etc. But then even after the children of Israel left Egypt, they dwelled in tents. But God dwelled among them. Amen? And God had a tabernacle where his presence was, but he was trying to speak to Israel to remember that, number one, we're a pilgrim people. We're traveling through this life. I'm going to get to that here in a moment. I don't want to get ahead of myself. But it's important, the three points I really want to bring home during this sermon that I believe Tabernacle speaks of for us as Christians is number one, that we are just simply traveling through this life. And it's like pilgrims, that, that, that we're like a nomadic people. We're, we're not going to let our feet get too sunk down into the soil of this present world. And we're not going to allow the cares of this world to, to grow up around us and choke out our fruitfulness. We're going to keep our head up and our feet moving. Because we're looking for a city whose maker and builder is God himself. All right. So let me just read a couple more things, and then I'll get into the meat of it. But Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles, he obviously would have been at all the different feasts. But in John 7.37, at the end of the feast, the seventh day, 
called Hoshana Rabbah. It is the, the great day of the feast. And during this time, the priest would bring in like large buckets of water and they would be dumping it out. And there was a lot of joy and celebrating. It was the last and great day of the feast. But they, they were praying as they were dumping out this water that God would continue to send rain on the land and bless his people. This was the last great day of the feast. It kind of climaxed here. And so Jesus, he went to this feast. And it says on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out saying, Now picture what's going on. Water is being poured out everywhere. People are praising and celebrating. There's these booths called a sukkah. They're everywhere. People, everybody's holding palm branches called a lulav, which I'm going to show you in a moment. They're celebrating, but they're dumping out these buckets of water. And they're looking for God's blessing. And Jesus, during all the midst of this, stands up and cries out with a loud voice. And he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me to drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So you have to understand the context. And what Jesus is trying to speak to us, I believe, is this. That during this time of tabernacles, that he is wanting to pour out his spirit. He's wanting to dwell in our midst. Not necessarily just because of this feast time like contained during tabernacles. But God is wanting in these latter days, the Bible says, to pour out his spirit on all flesh. And he's wanting to send great revival. He's wanting his presence to dwell among his people. And he's wanting rivers of living water to be flowing. And not just during this feast time, but all the time. God's wanting that in our lives. And I believe that's what Tabernacle speaks of in the life of a Christian. And then, of course, we read about the Lulav. And this is significant because a lot of people don't understand. Can one of y'all bring that to me too? But what a lot of people don't understand is... When Jesus came riding in on a donkey on Palm Sunday where it's celebrated, okay, thank you. On Palm Sunday, Jesus comes riding in on a donkey and people go running out to cut down palm branches and they're all waving these palm branches and they're singing and they're praising Hosanna and they're laying down the palm branches. You have to understand that Christians around the world are doing this and they, they call it Palm Sunday and that's great. It's, it's beautiful. But you have to understand the Hebrew mindset. The reason why they were doing that is because God had already told them that, and let me read it to you in Leviticus 23.40. On the first day, it's talking about during this tabernacle, Sukkot. On the first day, you'll take for yourselves foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches. That's the number, number one. And this being called the lulav, that is the palm branch, and that's the branch here in the middle. It's the most prominent branch here, Okay. And then also, the boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook. So you had the myrtle, the branch of the myrtle here, and then you had the willow tree branch. And then he says, you'll rejoice before the Lord seven days. And he also said of the the goodly trees in there, the beautiful trees. And this is where you get this lemon-like, it's called the etrog, and... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like a lemon, but it's not, okay? That's all I know about it. Anyway, and to this day, 
you'll see people during this time, I mean, they're just dancing and they're waving these branches and rejoicing before the Lord. And so this was something that's ingrained in the culture. And I thought it was so interesting as I've studied this because this is connected to the fall feast. They're doing this during tabernacles time. So why in the world that people, all of a sudden, it's Passover time. Why is it that Jesus starts riding in on a donkey and all of a sudden people spontaneously begin to run over to palm trees and rip down some palm branches and begin to make kind of like a little lulav, if you will, and they're waving this, they're singing Hosanna, Hosanna, and they're singing, they're praising, they're worshiping God, they're, they're singing unto Jesus, and he's riding on a donkey. Why did they do that at Passover? I believe that something in them knew that the Messiah had showed up. I believe that the, the average people in Israel were accepting of his ministry. I really do. But what happened was, as people were doing that, the religious leaders of that day got ticked off. And they began to go among the people and rebuke them. And they began to, to turn the people against Jesus. And next thing you know, they went, you know, Judas, we know the story, they captured Jesus. Of course, he willingly went. Amen. And they, whenever they brought him up, what? The religious leaders went through the crowd and told them, shout, crucify, crucify. And they turned the people against Jesus. But I believe... That when Jesus came in on that donkey, that something was stirring in their hearts that they knew the Messiah was coming in. And what did they do? They ran and, and quickly made a little throw-together lulav, and they were praising him, and they were singing, and they were waving this before him. And so during this time, I believe that this will make more sense as I go. These feasts help us understand the Bible so much more. So let me go back to this first point I already touched on. We're just passing through this life. This is one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible right here. So this is one of the three points I really want to bring home. Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. How many knows that would have took a lot of faith? Because Abraham lived in a time, if you wandered off in the desert and you didn't know what you were doing, you could die. And not only that, his family could die. I mean, this really took a lot of faith. And verse 9 says, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise. So Abraham goes to Canaan, and you've got all these different Canaanite tribes, all these people. And here's this guy from the Ur Chaldees, this Hebrew man that stuck out. He was a foreigner in a strange land that God had sent him with his little group of people he brought with him. And it says, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Verse 10, look at this. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham was looking for a heavenly city. I don't know what happened when God called Abraham, but something for this scripture to be in the Bible, Abraham had to have some kind of a revelation of what I'm going to be preaching on of a heavenly city. He had to have been shown something, but he was looking for a city whose maker and builder is God. And Abraham understood that even though he was in the land of Canaan around all these heathen 
that he was still like a, a pilgrimage. He was, he was somebody that was dwelling in tents, and he was just traveling through this life, but he wasn't going to take up residence. See, the Canaanites lived in stone houses. It's like they were, uh, you know, everything was wrapped up in this current life. And too many people are like that, even among Christianity. We're too caught up with this present life. Listen, we're passing through. Don't get too wrapped up. In Matthew six nineteen, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And so Jesus is telling us, number one, that we're just passing through. And I've heard that, you know, Steve Hill gave that prophecy and it just, I guess somehow it's become a permanent part of my memory. <laughs> but it's so powerful. Man, I should play it sometime again for you guys. But he said in there, he said, God is coming for a pilgrim people. Keep your head up and your feet moving. Do not let your feet sink too down deep into the soil of this world. I'm coming for a pilgrim people. And that is what God is trying to teach us during this time with the sukkah being built. That it's like God is wanting, the, the sukkah represents um, you know, we're, our life, so to speak, but his presence in our life, and that we're just going through this life. We're just pilgrims. All right, the next point I want to make is this. The land of Goshen. I believe with all my heart that God is wanting to place his hand over us, his covering. I'm going to show you something here. This is Psalm 27, verse 5. Y'all look at your notes, okay? Psalm 27, verse 5. Follow with this. This is awesome. See, David grew up his whole life in a culture that every year they would have built a sukkah. His family would have built a booth. And they would have dwelled in that his whole life. All of his neighbors, everybody was building their little sukkah, you know, right at Tabernacles. And every year they had these palm branches, this lulav, and they, they would celebrate before the Lord. So I want you to understand the context that King David wrote this in. He said, for he, speaking of God, will hide me, and that can translate cover me, in his sukkah. And that's actually what it says in the Hebrew. Isn't that something? It's translated pavilion or tabernacle in English, but if you look at the Hebrew script, those that know it, it says sukkah. In the day of trouble, he will conceal me in the secret place of his tent. On the rock, he will raise me up. You know what David had a revelation of? That that sukkah represents an overshadowing of God's presence in our lives. Did everybody follow what I just said there? He's saying when I get in trouble, when I'm going through spiritual warfare, when the enemy wants my destruction, I can hide away in his sukkah of presence in my life. He understood that God wanted his presence around him. In Isaiah 4, 4, when the Lord had washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodstain of Jerusalem from her midst, by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. See, God has got a clean house first. Then verse 5, Then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion, over her assemblies, a cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory will be a canopy 
or it can translate a defense. God wants to come in and purge the junk out, and He's wanting to tabernacle His presence in our lives. And you know what's going to happen when He does that? The glory of God will be a defense. It will be a protection in your life. It says in verse 6, there, talking about under that glory, it will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day and a refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. How many of you guys know in the latter days that we're living, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world? I'm convinced that God is going to give us supernatural protection. I'm convinced of it. I'm convinced that those that will allow him to purge their life and those that will understand some of these things like coming under the blood, that those that will do that, that there's going to be a glory settled over his people in these latter days that's going to be over our properties and over our lives. And because of that glory, we're going to be protected from a lot of the junk that's going on in this world. And there's going to be supernatural provision and supernatural healing in the glory. See, the children of Israel, even though they were in Egyptian territory, everybody follow my line of thinking here, okay? They lived in Egypt. But the city that they were put in was called Goshen. They were originally put there. It was an area that was good for the sheep to graze, okay? But the Egyptians hated shepherds. And so they kind of wanted them to be off in their own little area. But while the judgments were coming down, Moses came before Pharaoh, and Moses is confronting Pharaoh, and now there's a clash. You remember that? Moses threw down his rod, it became a snake. And then the sorcerers did the same thing. Other Hebrew texts, this is interesting, other Hebrew texts, some of y'all that like this sort of thing, bears out that the two people were Janus and Jambres, and they were actually the two sons of Balaam remember him the guy that stood up and tried to curse Israel but anyway he had to face those sorcerers so now you're dealing with a clash spiritual clash and God began to bring judgment on Egypt and we know the story all these plagues came down but have you ever read and took notice that even though the plagues were coming on Egypt that the plagues were not coming on Goshen The children of Israel were being shielded and protected from those things. And I believe that God is trying to prepare us right now. I believe that anybody that's got any biblical knowledge about the end times and any type of discernment, you can sense that the coming of the Lord is near. We're not talking about another hundred years, people. I would be surprised if it's not in my lifetime. But the coming of the Lord is near, and it's like the beginning of sorrows, the, the birth pangs. You can sense it in the earth. Something is stirring. And God is wanting us to come, just like the Passover. God brought Israel, and remember, they, they brought their home under the blood of that lamb, and that blood was put on the doorpost, and that whole family was under that blood. And even though the death angel went through all of Egypt and went through Goshen, they were the only ones that weren't touched. God is calling the body of Christ. And it's interesting because to me, I've, I've been doing this now for so many years, but it's really 
awesome to see the body of Christ beginning to get a revelation about the communion table on a larger scale. And I'm seeing that God is calling us to come up under His blood. And because of the blood, the glory of God is beginning to come into our midst. The glory of God is wanting to come in people's homes. And because of the blood and because of the glory of the Lord, I believe that we're going to be protected. And that's another message of this, you know, building a sukkah. Because you're thinking, in the natural, there's no protection. But what people don't understand is even though that sukkah looks really flimsy and looks like if you ran into it very hard, it would probably fall down. And if you were outside with it, if a really good wind came, it would just blow it down the street. But you have to understand what it represents. It represents the glory of God in your life. And how many knows that the glory of God's in your life? It doesn't matter how many storms Satan throws against you. So we're just passing through. But while we're here in these latter days, God's wanting to tuck us away in his presence. And I really like this part. This is kind of dovetailing on this last point, but great revival glory. In Acts fifteen sixteen. after this, the Bible says, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. Remember, David loved the glory of God so much. He loved God's presence so much. Remember, David, how he would sit out in the fields by himself. He was somewhat of the reject in the family. He really was. He was the youngest there's different stories about maybe he had a different mother than the others or something. I don't know. But he was stuck out in the fields by himself, tending those little sheep. His brothers didn't have a lot of respect for him, nor his father, because when Samuel came, they didn't even invite him. They didn't even think that he would be possibly king material. But David got out there with his little harp and would worship the Lord. And I guarantee you that he began in that worship and prayer for long hours by himself, he began to experience God's presence in his life. And God began to touch David's heart. And David also was a great warrior. And God gave him the opportunity to face the lion and the bear. And some of us read over that and don't realize how scary that actually would be if you're out there by yourself with sheep, nobody's around, and a lion shows up. And a bear shows up, okay? But God gave him that lion and bear to prepare him. So not only was David learning to be a worshiper and a prayer warrior, he was also learning to rise up and defeat the enemy, so to speak. And he took down that lion, he took down the bear, and he remembered that when he took down Goliath. Remember that? But David began to get familiar with the presence of God. And his family, every year, would build a sukkah. And I just read you out of Psalms how David, in his mind, was thinking, when I'm in trouble... God will hide me away in his tabernacle, his sukkah of his presence. And David grew up knowing about the tabernacle of Moses, a tent where the glory was. And so David, having such a heart for God's presence, when he became king over Jerusalem, he says, I've got to get the ark here where I am. And so he got some of the Levites together, and I'm going to make this long story short. He went down there and got the ark and brought it in Jerusalem. And what did he do? He built a little sukkah, a little booth, a little tent, the house of the ark. And David began to have the Levites go in shifts where they would worship and pray. 
And he basically instituted kind of like a 24-7 prayer movement around that glory of the ark. And David was able to go near where that ark was and pray. But David loved God's presence. And that to me is the greatest message here. We're just passing through. But while we're here, God said, build me a sanctuary that I might dwell among you. You know, tonight I hope people can hear that. You know what God's saying to us in River of Life? He's saying it to you as an individual. If you'll just build me a sanctuary, I'll dwell among you. If you'll just prepare your life, I will come and tabernacle my glory among you. And it's just like Moses in the cleft of the rock. Remember how Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. Man, he loved God and he wanted to see God's glory. And God said, okay, I'll pass before you and you can see my back, but I'm going to put my hand over you. And so God goes and he shows Moses his hinder parts, but he put his hand over Moses. And Moses, when he came out, his face was shining because he had been in the glory. But the point of it is, is that the hand of God over Moses was like the sukkah. It was like a covering of God's presence. And if we will make our lives a dwelling place for God, and we will really pray and desire the glory to come, I believe that God will send his glory among us. But once a level, y'all hear me, once a level of his presence comes in, you need to sustain that level. And then once you sustain that level, let God increase that level. I grew up my whole life in church and I saw where there was many times that the Holy Spirit would come and would move real powerfully for a service. And then it seemed like it was gone next week. What would have happened if everybody would have kept trying to sustain that level and that would just simply be the way that it is and then go to new levels of the glory? God is not just wanting to have a visitation and then leave. He's wanting his glory to tabernacle all the time and to be sustained. And so now let me go to this, the millennial reign of Christ. So the main first point that we're just passing through, the second point that God's glory tabernacle among us, the third point, what I mentioned at the beginning, this speaks of the millennial reign of Christ. So what's going to happen? Let me walk you through it. We're going to continue seeing the beginning of sorrows, the birth pangs, earthquakes, famines, pestilence, wars, rumors of wars, you know, different types of plagues, different types of things in the earth that's circulating. How many are seeing this? It's like reading, you read the newspaper, whatever. It's like reading the Bible right now. We're seeing all this happen. Everything Jesus said would happen is starting to happen. Why? Because we're in the latter days. You're going to continue to see this. But while this is going on, God, the earth, as far as the evil aspect of it, that is being prepared for the Antichrist. But we, as God's people, the Spirit of God is preparing us for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And God is pouring out His Spirit on all flesh. He's drawing in an end-time harvest. 
He's moving with great power, and he's preparing us as a bride so that when Jesus calls us from the air and that shofar blast takes place and there's, there's a cry of that archangel, that shout, we're going to meet him in the air to go to that marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the next thing on God's agenda, the big you know, fulfillment, if you will, of the next feast. And Israel's going to continue to go forward. They're going to probably annex more land, but they're going to have to rebuild a temple, and they're going to face biblical wars, the Bible talks about. So what you have to understand is the rapture is not for the nation of Israel. I think everybody knows that. The rapture is for the bride. Is it okay that I rabbit trail and explain something for a minute? When God took the nation of Israel, and they came out of Egypt, and they went to Sinai, the glory of God settled over Sinai like that chuppah. Even to this day, Jewish weddings is underneath a chopa where there's a, like a big giant talit or persho. And God tabernacled there and he gave them the law and that was the ketubah. It's a, a, like a marriage license. And they agreed. And God the Father married himself to the nation of Israel at Sinai. But what you have to understand is, is God the Son has married himself to the church, the bride. Does this make sense? God the Son has a bride, a remnant bride. Not necessarily everybody that goes to church, but God knows who's the wheat and who's the tares. And he's got a bride. And when Jesus comes to catch away his bride, this is not for the nation of Israel. This is for the bridegroom to be able to have a wedding feast with his bride. And once that takes place, the days of Jacob's trouble begin. And I explained that thoroughly. I can't get back into that. But the nation of Israel is going to go through a real shaking. There's going to be just judgments and plagues hitting the earth because a lot of it have to do with the way they're treating Israel, um, but also their unrepentant sin. And let me say this, and then I'll explain. So the three different feasts, remember me explaining about Passover being the barley? During Passover time is the barley harvest. And it's interesting because the barley is gentle. And they would build like a, it's called uh, an area that you would, you know, threshing floor. And it was like stone and it would form like a wind tunnel. And they would bring all that barley in there, the owner would, and he would have a pitchfork called a winnowing fork. And as that wind would blow through that threshing floor like a wind tunnel, he would take that barley and toss it up in the air and the wind would carry away the chaff and the grain would fall down in front of him and he would keep doing that until it was just grain there. And this was called threshing of the barley. And then after that feast, I mean, after that harvest came the wheat harvest. This was during Pentecost. The wheat was different. You would bring it in, but it had a hard husk around it. So you couldn't just toss it up. It... It had to be crushed. And so they created these sleds, and they would tie these sleds to an animal, and people would stand on that sled, and they would ride it over the wheat, and it, the weight of their body with that sled would crack that husk around the wheat. And then they could go behind it, and they could you know shake it and get the grain out. And then the final harvest was at the end of the year, and this was during tabernacles. And you had things toward the fall that had to do with the grapes and the olives. 
Now I want you to picture the fact that the grapes in the Bible, many times, you know, seriously, it's called the grapes of wrath, and, and it talks about how there's like a crushing of the grapes and, and the blood of the grape. And so these three harvests are prophetic. Right now, as we are living in this dispensation, the Holy Spirit of God is moving upon us. This is a time of grace. Is everybody hear what I'm saying? This is a time of grace. The Holy Spirit is trying to draw as many people that will accept Jesus as will. And the winnowing fork, one of these days, we're going to be tossed up into the air and meet the Lord in the air. But it's a gentle harvest. It's, it's by the work of, of the Holy Spirit. But those that don't yield to this harvest and are not caught away when the Lord comes, they're going to be left here during the tribulation time. In the tribulation time, there's going to be a crushing of that time. It's going to be very difficult, but there's still going to be a harvest. You remember reading in the book of Revelation where we're at the marriage supper of the Lamb, but then there was this harvest that took place out of the tribulation and those people that were killed in the tribulation were put underneath the golden altar and they were given white robes and they said when will our blood be avenged and he said wait just a little bit longer that was the tribulation harvest but after the tribulation and after that harvest takes place during the tribulation as many people are going to die the lord is going to come back and this is his glorious appearing this is tabernacles where the Lord's going to split the eastern sky. He's going to destroy all the armies that had surrounded Israel and he's going to go into rule and reign. But it says that he's going to send out his angels to go gather his elect from the four corners. There's people that Jewish people that were scattered. There's also probably Christians that are in hiding. But the angels of the Lord are going to go get them and bring them to Jesus in Jerusalem. And the Jewish people are going to see him and they're going to realize, the Bible says they're going to look on him that they pierced and they're going to mourn because they're going to realize he really was the Messiah. And this whole time we've been rejecting him, but he really was. And they're going to weep and it's going to be like Joseph when he revealed himself to his brothers in Egypt and they wept and hugged him. And that's going to be like the grape harvest because there's going to be so much bloodshed that takes place at the very end. Is this making sense? So during Christ's reign, Jesus, let me walk you through it. Jesus comes back now. He's already caught away the bride. We bent the marriage supper. Israel's already had the tribulation. Now Jesus is splitting the eastern sky. He's coming back on a white horse. He's got all of his bride with him. And we're coming back to rule and reign with him on the earth. And Jesus goes into Jerusalem. He puts his feet on the Mount of Olives. It splits in two. He goes in. He's setting up his throne. Now the elect are being gathered. The Jewish people are accepting him as the Messiah. And it says in Matthew 25, 32, he's going to gather the nations unto him and he's going to judge the nations that remain. Because there's not going to be a whole lot of people alive. Now the last part of this sermon is going to make a lot of sense to you guys. It's going to be pretty interesting. So picture this. Now Jesus has come. He's on the earth. The nations are being gathered unto him. Most people have died but through the tribulation, but there's still different nations. There's going to be sheep nations and goat nations. The goat nations are the evil nations, and it had to do with the way they treated Israel. And he said he was going to throw them into hell. But the sheep nations are going to remain. And Jesus right now is trying to prepare you and I to rule and reign with him. 
If you understand that in Luke 19, 11 through 27, he was telling us that we're being judged right now, so to speak, and we're being prepared because he gave out like 10 talents to this person and, and five to this person and one to this person. And the one that was faithful with the 10, he said, okay, you were faithful with these 10 talents, so now I'm going to put you to rule over 10 cities. You have to understand there's going to come a time when those among the people of God that were overcomers and were really faithful are going to be ruling over cities and regions in the millennial reign of Christ. Has anybody understood this before? And the feasts are going to be kept. I've already talked about this before, so I'm not going to go back into it. Zechariah 14, we know the nations will come to Jerusalem to celebrate uh, tabernacles. But I want you to think about something for a minute. As people talk about being under the law, the Sabbath was set in place during creation way before there was ever a law. Has anybody ever thought about that? Did you know that the new moon celebration, that the turn of the Hebrew month is at the new moon? So every first of the Hebrew month, they would have a feast and celebrate before the Lord and blast the shofar. Did you know that that was set up in Exodus 12, 1 through 2, before the law was given? So I'm just trying to show you that these things are greater than just the law, if you will. All right, during this time, the thousand-year reign of Christ, Jesus comes. Satan and all of his fallen angels are going to be bound. They're going to be bound. They're not going to be able to function in the earth. And so God, Jesus is now he's ruling and reigning on the earth. He's going to start making the earth like it was in the Garden of Eden. Can you imagine how waters used to be so polluted, but now waters are going to be purified in the millennial reign? How green and how lush everything's going to be? The curse on creation is going to be lifted. The Bible talks about the wolf will lay down like with the lamb, and the lion will, lay, will eat straw, and children will be able to play with cobras. That the curse is coming off of creation to where the danger is gone. And, and it's going to be a time like the Garden of Eden. Jesus is going to be here for a thousand years. That's a long time. America is only 240 years old. Think about that. Jesus is going to reign for a thousand years. And during this time, he's going to deal with all this stuff, all, you know, all this pollution. And as this takes place and the curse is lifted, there's going to be a lot of us that are going to have glorified bodies. So those of us that do have glorified bodies, we're not going to age. In a sense, we're going to be kind of like the angels. And uh, that's why Jesus said you're not going to necessarily be married and procreate because you're going to have this glorified body. But there's still going to be people on the earth that when Jesus comes back, they were survivors. So they've still got a natural body with a sin nature and they're going to be aging. They're going to be marrying. They're going to be having children. They're going to populate the earth again for a thousand years. But what you have to understand is because of Jesus being here and the knowledge of his glory filling the earth as waters the sea, his glory is in the earth, the curse is lifted, people are probably going to live a lot longer. You remember reading in the Bible, people live like 700 years, 800 years. You're thinking, well, probably that's going to be happening during this time. So think about somebody at 700 years old. You know your Great, 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 great grandson, you know, right? And the family reunions are going to be huge, right? And that's the way it's going to be. 
And so during this time, the curse is lifted. Creation's going to be different. And this is going to happen for a thousand years. Now during this time, there's going to be a lot of children born that all they've ever known is the rule of Jesus Christ. All they've ever known is the earth without the devil. And so the Bible says that at the end of the millennial reign, that God's going to allow the devil to be loosed for a short time. And he's going to go throughout the earth. And we're going to be telling these people. I know you are. I am. We're going to be telling these people. Everybody we can. Now listen. This is a thousand years. And at the end of it, there's this, this guy named the devil, the Lucifer, whatever. And I'm telling you, don't listen to him. We're going to be telling all these people, don't listen to him. But you know what? The Bible plays out. There's going to be a lot of people that do. A lot. And they're going to try, they're under Satan's influence, and it mentions Gog and Magog. It's interesting. They're going to try to come against Jerusalem again. And Jesus isn't going to have to get up and break a sweat. Okay, fire is just going to come down from heaven. They're gone. And so, right now, we live in this church age, and the Holy Spirit is at work. He's preparing us for the age to come, where Jesus comes, right? Jesus, during this thousand-year reign, he's here. He's going to be preparing for the Father to come. And so, while Jesus is reigning, he's placing his faithful ones over cities. The whole earth is going to be different. And now this was like the final cleansing, the final rebellion. And so what's going to happen is now Jesus is going to be known as the great white throne judgment. Jesus is going to sit on a throne. And this is the second resurrection. This is not a resurrection you want to be a part of. But people are going to be raised up out of hell. And they're going to be connected with their physical body on the earth. They're going to be brought before the Lord. And the Lord is going to open the books, I mean, to every single one of them and explain to them, you're not going to be in heaven because, and it's going to be told why, it's a great white throne judgment. And hell is no longer going to be like it is with like a, a torture chamber and all this horrible stuff down there where the demonic is tormenting people. All of it is going to become a lake of fire. And the Lord is going to send all these people at the great white throne judgment that were not right with him they're going to be thrown into the lake of fire. And that's where the false prophet and the Antichrist is. That's where all of Satan and his fallen angels, all of them are going to be in that lake of fire. Is this making sense? So God's going to clean house. All those are going to be judged that need to be judged at the great white throne. And all of them are going to be put under the earth in the lake of fire. And that's going to be done. So we're talking about the end of the millennial reign. And then Peter saw that there's going to be like a, a glory fire that's going to purge the earth. It's going to purge the elements. It's going to purge the ground. And there's going to be like a glory fire, a fervent heat that's going to come and going to purify the earth. And right now, the Holy Spirit's at work. And then for that thousand years, Jesus was doing all this work on the earth, making it another paradise, another Garden of Eden. But now... God is going to purify the earth with his fire. And the Bible says that God the Father is going to have this huge heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. And God the Father with this new heavenly Jerusalem is going to come down on the earth. And that's going to be interesting, isn't it? Because now 
for the first time, God the Father is going to be on the earth. You understand that? And the Bible says the dwelling of God will be with man and man with God forever. And so everybody at this time, I believe, the way I perceive it, is going to have glorified bodies. Everything's going to be finished. Those that needed to be judged and thrown in the lake of fire are gone. The earth is being purified with like a glory fire. And the Father came down. And this, you should read this, um, this new Jerusalem. It's going to be a beautiful heavenly city. And this city is going to be 1,500 miles. That's from here to California. 1,500 miles square and 1,500 miles tall. Now, some Bible scholars believe it will be kind of like a pyramid in that it would go up and be like a point at the top would be where God the Father is and the Son. But it would be because, remember, he lit the earth. There was no need for the sun and moon any longer. Remember that? And so if it was more of like a pyramid shape, the light could shine out. But it's going to be amazing. And that's what we believe. And so let me close with this. This Feast of Tabernacles is prophesying that Jesus will come and tabernacle on the earth, literally, physically here. How many of you guys believe that with me? How many of you guys look for that day when you and I are going to be able to say, hey, let's go on down to Jerusalem and we're going to be able to go there and Jesus is physically going to be there. We're going to be able to see him. That's going to come. And not only that, but there's a time a thousand years after that that God the Father will come and tabernacle on the earth. And that's what we're looking for with tabernacles. So let me just give you this in closing about the Hebrew mindset. I mentioned this earlier, but that's why the people ran to get palm branches when Jesus was coming. Something in them knew that he was the Messiah. Something began. See, Israel, had they, waving the palm branches, okay, the lulav, had they accepted Jesus when he came, this would have all been set in motion at that time. But because Israel rejected their Messiah, salvation went to the ends of the earth until the time of the Gentiles, the fullness of the Gentiles is brought in. Does this make sense? And so we look for that day. But that's why they went and got palm branches. And let me read this and I'll close with this. Matthew 17 verse 1. Six days later, uh, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. So Jesus all of a sudden starts glowing like Moses' face glowed. He's glowing. His clothes are shining. And he's transfigured. His face was shining like the sun. His garments became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them and talking with them. Now Peter said to Jesus, Lord, now remember Peter grew up his whole life around the time of tabernacles. Just like David, him and his family would build a little sukkah. They went to the local market and they got their lulav. And every year they'd celebrate for the Lord, waving the lulav. And they had their, their little sukkah. And Peter understood about the presence of the Lord like that. And so when Jesus was transfigured, Peter looked and he said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here. What was he talking about? Three booths. <clears throat> he said, Jesus, I'll make a sukkah for you. I'll make a sukkah for Moses. I'll make a sukkah for Elijah. 
And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up, do not be afraid. Lifting, lifting them up, uh, their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus there. But you have to understand the mindset. This would have been what Peter was talking about, building Jesus a little sukkah. And one for Elijah, one for Moses, you know. It might have been during the tabernacle's time is why he said that, I don't know. But when Jesus came the first time, he came at the Feast of Tabernacles when he was born, probably. I believe he was. And when Jesus comes again to Israel, where his feet touch the Mount of Olives, when he comes physically again in his glorious appearing, he's going to come probably on tabernacles. Amen? So, Lord, we pray that your glory would tabernacle among us like never before. Help us, Lord, to have a heavenly mindset and realize we're just passing through this life. Lord, we're hungry for more of you. Come dwell among us. In Jesus' name.